The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast, the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis. And today I am joined by our guest, Michael Beer, who is the CFO over at FreeWire Technologies in California. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Our topic today is going to be the process of raising capital, but I'm also going to have Michael share some stories and lessons learned throughout his career. Michael, if you wouldn't mind, could you provide the listeners with a short introduction, bio, your background? Sure. Happy to do it. been in my current seat as CFO of FreeWire for the better part of, I guess, six or eight months now. Prior to FreeWire, spent just over four years at a company called Luminar Technologies, which is a leading developer of LiDAR technology for autonomous cars, in effect. It's used in a whole host of other applications, but but really that's their core competency. And while at Luminar raised about a billion dollars in cumulative capital across various private raises, as well as the go public transaction, which culminated in a SPAC in December of 2020, and include the shares have traded quite well since that time. Prior to Luminar, I spent 15 years on the institutional sell side, most recently at Citibank in Hong Kong and Singapore, overseeing the broader Asian transport franchise, including airline, shipping, logistics, infrastructure, and things of that nature, including Southeast Asia and India, you know, helped take a number of companies public, including Indigo Airlines in India, Bangkok Airways in Thailand, Melco Crown in the Philippines, EOC Aviation in China, Carry Logistics in Hong Kong, and, and so forth. Prior to that, I was at Bear Stearns and Wolf Research, covering the freight transportation space, FedEx, UPS, the trucking space, freight forwarders, railroads, things of that nature. And funny enough, started my career actually in oil and gas with a company called Benchmark, prior to that, Goldman Sachs, but covering the ENP space, BP, Total, Rolex, Shell, as well as some of the refiners, Valero and, and Tesoro and so forth. So spent you know better part of 20 years, always kind of covering infrastructure and transportation more broadly. And of course, as my career has progressed, a little bit more on the capital formation, the capital origination side of the business, and in particular, now adding a, more of a technology angle as companies move into you know, this fourth industrial revolution and, and try to digitize what are historically more brick and mortar type businesses. So it's been a wild ride and a ton of fun. So you mentioned something about living overseas. And so you were over in Hong Kong. How long were you over there for? Lived there for seven years. I think for many folks, you go for 12 to 24 months and, and you, you blink and you wake up and you've been there for, you know, over a decade and if not 20 years, it was a ton of fun. Unfortunately, as, as Americans, we don't have the opportunity to, to travel extensively. You know, we get our 10 days off a year right. and I've always loved travel and it was an opportunity to see the world on, frankly, on somebody else's dime. Living in Hong Kong, certainly prior to some of the things that they're dealing with today, it was a different time and a, a lot of fun and no better place to kind of use as the jump point to see the rest of Southeast Asia and South Asia. So really a ton of fun. Did you pick up any of the language skills while you were there? I speak what I call taxi cab Cantonese. So I'm <laughs> barely conversant outside of that, but you know, I know how to say it's hot in like seven different languages. So, so maybe that counts. <laughs> nice. 
And you mentioned that one of the previous companies that you work for, they went public through a SPAC. Is that right? That's right. So Luminar Technologies, founded by Austin Russell, you know, they developed a LiDAR technology for self-driving cars. LiDAR is an optical device. It's like radar, but using laser. So you effectively are sending out multiple laser points and effectively creating a real-time 3D map of the world around the car. So really some next-gen technology. And they had, you know, they had employed hundreds of engineers. I think they had a millennia of LiDAR expertise on the team split between Colorado, Northern California, and Orlando, Florida, and had really come up with a a novel next-gen LiDAR device. And I think there was news today that they partnered with NVIDIA. The stock was up, I think, 50% before the market opened. I think it it closed up around 18 or 20%. So it's clearly done very, very well. They've been sort of acknowledged as the industry leader and as a result of partnering with the likes of Volvo and Daimler Trucks and Mobileye and, and, and countless others. So really a phenomenal company and part of Really what we've seen over the last 24 months, this whole SPAC renaissance, right? SPAC is nothing new. In fact, you know, 15 years ago, it was a bit of a four-letter word, but it's now kind of used for those companies that are more hardware-centric, but have probably outgrown Sand Hill Road, the traditional VC channel. You know, VCs, certainly here in Northern California, love enterprise software and things of that nature. Hardware, you know, anything that's touching you know, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, space, some of these sectors that are a little bit more capital intensive and, and hardware centric, they need a lot of, of money. And if you've outgrown Sand Hill Road, you know, only a handful of folks are able to tap into deep pocketed strategic investors. So what, what do the other folks do? And you're typically a bit too immature to go public in a normal course sort of way. And so how do you bridge that divide? And so SPACs have really had their day in the sun as of late. You know, the Virgin Galactic and Nicholas backs and Luminar are sort of credited as sort of, you know, really kicked off this recent rise. But now there are hundreds of, you know, listings out there that are currently searching for targets. And it's, it's highly competitive. And, you know, it's unclear to me whether there are enough high quality private companies to satiate that level of demand without going down the quality curve. So how does this SPAC work? Because I know when you're trying to IPO, right, when you're trying to go public, you work with an investment banking group and you know there's a process that, that you go through in order to get listed on one of the big exchanges, right? And you know, you have to get your valuations and there's like a whole process to it, which I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with. And maybe you can speak to that. But what's the, you know, kind of tell the differences between going that traditional route and then going through with a SPAC? Yeah. So, you know, if we just go back to it, you know, at its core, a SPAC is is really for those companies that are probably 12 to 24 months away from being IPO ready is the way I sort of think about it. Now, what the hell does that mean? How do you know if you're 24 months away from being IPO ready? And what does it mean to be IPO ready? You know, if I look back over the last 20, 25 years, I just pulled some numbers down. I think it was typical IPOs over that time frame had anywhere between 80 and $100 million in revenue. They've been in existence for six or seven years on average, half of which were profitable, half of which were not. So that was sort of the, the common DNA. Anybody who hadn't quite been at that level of maturity, you know, how do you bring in sizable amounts of capital? And so SPAC was a nice way for companies that are maybe two years away from being public. The investing public kind of acknowledged some of the heightened risks associated with that investment. And the mechanism sort of allowed for those companies to come to market, have a liquidity event, and allow for public public market capital to sort of tap into that, as well as retail investors. And there's been a whole thing around, I believe it's the Jobs Act that allowed for, you know, I don't want to say just retail, but but smaller you know, individual investors to, to now participate in 
what was historically reserved for, for just venture capitalists in Northern California. So it sort of democratized access to interesting deal flow in earlier stage companies that are you know, kind of in the sweet spot of their growth curve. So, you know, it's a very differentiated process. So when you do a private raise, you know, for a, a venture-backed company, you know, it's sort of a, a bilateral conversation between, you know, the lead investor in the company, and then maybe some other investors right alongside, you know, the terms that are, are generally established. A SPAC is somewhat similar in that, you know, it's the SPAC sponsor, which is basically a blank check. They've been given two, three, four hundred million dollars to go out and find an interesting target. And they basically are a listed entity, a shell of sorts, where the only asset is the actual cash that sits in a trust account. And when they identify a target, they pledge to invest the two, three, four hundred million dollars into the target company. And while they're investing and only taking a small stake in the company, they basically do a reverse merger and it allows for that, that company to basically back into the shell that's already listed and by default become listed themselves. So it's a great way to get listed, to add capital to your balance sheet and so forth. Now, there are a lot of other caveats here around redemptions and you know the pipe market and, and so forth. The pipe market is other capital that was not in the SPAC at its outset that rides alongside with the terms generally and is there to, in effect, pad the capital that's being raised, but more importantly, probably validate from a market perspective, the bilateral valuation that was set between the SPAC sponsor and the company, right? Because that was done in a boardroom somewhere between two parties. The market has not spoken. The market has not really evaluated, you know, what that company is truly worth. And so that's what that pipe capital helps establish is trying to, from a price discovery perspective, establish, yes, this is what the market believes this thing is truly worth. So that when it's listed, you know, retail investors, in effect, would see no change in the overall valuation. And so, you know, from the time the valuation is set to the actual closing of that transaction, that can be anywhere between two and six months on average. Some companies take less time, some companies more. And during that period, you would, you know, file with the SEC your S4 and go through that whole process and make sure that you're, you know, you've been deemed effective. And then the transaction closes with board approvals on both, both sides. And then you're a listed entity. Typically, at that point, you would have seen the ticker symbol for the SPAC will change the ticker symbol that the company itself has designated or, or identified, right? So in the case of Luminar, they chose LAZR as their ticker. And so when the deal closed, you would have seen GMHI, which was the ticker for the SPAC, turned into LAZR. And that's when you kind of knew it had closed. So, you know, for a lot of folks, when they're looking up these companies, they don't quite know what they're looking for. They're looking for the SPAC ticker, the company ticker. So it, it can be a little bit confusing. But I think what's important here is those are sort of a blank check sort of process to establish value and to inject capital, whereas a traditional IPO is a little bit more driven by, by market forces, right? The market effectively is establishing the value for that company, typically within a range. It's a more mature company, and the investment banks are a little bit more involved in, in terms of setting that actual valuation based on, based on market trends and market participation in the, in the book. So I know that's a long-winded response to your question, but hopefully it gives you some color. No, that's very thorough. Thank you. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. We're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th 
once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. For this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. And obviously, as your job, you're helping the company not just manage its resources, right? But you're also helping a company raise funds. What are some of the things that, you know, leaders in the business that you sit alongside with at the executive level, what are some of the things that you have to help them understand that they maybe, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're technical at the base of their education. Maybe they didn't get an MBA and, you know, maybe they didn't major in finance. So what are some of the things that you're helping them understand? Like when we're raising capital, here are things that we need to do in order to make ourselves attractive, whether it's, you know, like getting your, I don't know if it's like your balance sheets and all these things in order that maybe are not in order. What are some of the common threads that you'll see, you know, companies maybe have to work on in order to get to the point where they're ready to start marketing themselves for investment? Yeah. So maybe I'll unpack that just a little bit. First is, you know, there are multiple paths to kind of, you know, the CFO seat, if you will. I took a very non-traditional one. There, there are not a lot of equity research analysts that kind of move in, in this direction. But, you know, listen, equity research is a phenomenal foundation. I consider myself a student of the market and, and loved covering companies and sectors and, you know, investment thematics and things of that nature, both in the U.S. and abroad. There's no better job early in your career to kind of give you that brave appreciation for all of the different market dynamics, building models, you know, speaking eloquently, you know, writing in a condensed format, you know, putting together presentations, just, you know, Basically, your opinions are what put food on the table, right? You need to identify interesting arbitrage opportunities where a stock is either overpriced or underpriced, and it's based on your opinion. You know, you can help help you know lead investors to some interesting investment opportunities. Not a lot of folks go the corporate route, and if so, it, it's typically more in a you know investor relations type capacity. Other paths to the CFO seat are generally through FP&A, financial planning and, and analysis. That's the person who typically runs the budgeting process within a corporation. The other popular path is, is corporate development, which is typically folks who come out of banking, go into corp dev, which is more the M&A angle, financial strategy and so forth. And then the last is sort of a corporate controller, the accounting function. And so there are a lot of more accounting centric CFOs out there. You know, I consider myself much more of a fundraising strategic CFO. And there's, you know, that, that works very well for certain companies and, and less so for others. We just happen to be in the process of raising, you know, substantial capital and, and we think very creatively about how we tap into capital markets. So, you know, it happens to align very well with this company's broader, uh, broader objectives. And, and that's what's truly important here. In terms of things that an individual can do to shore up their own knowledge base. I mean, there's countless books out there. I'm sure you can attend half of MIT's courses for free if you wanted to on, you know, financial planning, financial engineering, and all of those sorts of things. But there's a wealth of information that's accessible to the public, whether you're investing in the investing public or, or just, you know, still a student and still getting your sea legs, if it were. So, you know, I, I implore everyone to, to certainly read, take an interest in certain stocks that you enjoy, right? If you love Tesla, pour over the 10K and, and understand, you know, what Elon is saying and how it's manifesting itself in terms of dollars and cents. That's probably the easiest way. And when I interview young, driven individuals, I always ask, you know, what, what's in your stock portfolio today? And if it's nothing, well, then you're probably doing it wrong. You're probably not, you're probably not passionate enough about this because you, you haven't taken that first step. And, you know, rain or shine, gain or loss, consider it all tuition, right? It allows you to kind of get a sense. And there's a phenomenal book called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. It's about this framed trader, Jesse Livermore in the 1920s, 1930s. And 
you know, this young guy started working in these bucket shops, these old trading outfits, I think in St. Louis initially. And this is long before you had stock charts, long before you had any of that. And, and his job at 17 years old was to read the ticker tape and to, to mark the boards and so forth. And it was just, you know, years of years of, of just reading these ticker tapes, he began to kind of establish in his gut, right? He understood when something was overbought or oversold. And, you know, you get that sort of gut feel for the market and, and how something's going to trade and react. And that's true today. And it was true 100 years ago. Anyway, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. My first job on Wall Street, I worked in the World Trade Tower 2 on the top floor, 106th floor for a guy named Greg Balabushka, the Atlantic Bank in New York. This was an internship. And my first day on the job, he basically sent me packing and told me to go downstairs and read the book before reporting to work. <laughs> so, so it's always a great story and a book that I always like to share with other people. But listen, there's a ton of work you can do on your own, but it all starts with enthusiasm and passion. And you can't fake that, right? Most definitely, yeah. So if this is not something that interests you and you think it's it's just to get rich quick, you're probably not in it for the right reasons. So I like that book recommendation and, and the way you explained it reminds me of actually another book that Malcolm Gladwell wrote called Blink, where subject matter experts are able to really just sort of, they call it, I guess, blinks, right? But they're able to just know by instantly seeing something like their intuition, their gut, whatever you want to call it, tells them something's right or wrong. One of the examples he gives is there was this artifact that was claimed to be however many years old. And they brought in some specialists to look at it at a museum. And, you know, they had been pouring over it for months and months and months. And this one specialist comes in, he's, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for a long time, looks at it for two minutes, says, yeah, it's fake. Maybe not even that long. And they're like, how can you say that? How do you know? And he said, I don't know. I just know it's fake. Like, and, and it ended up being that it was fake, but, you know, they were convinced it was real. But because like you were mentioning in that book, you know, you just get a feel for something after doing it for so long that you realize like, okay, I know this is right or wrong just by my experience. And so it's really interesting. And I think that that muscle that you develop over time, whether it's like you said, going over the 10Ks, getting yourself financially fit through reading different books and things of that nature. I know there's probably like, like you mentioned, there's a bunch of open courses you could take a COL. Was there any one course or any one Thing that you remember from your training that you felt was like, that's probably, you know, if you're going to start somewhere, like, let's say, for instance, let's say I'm an entrepreneur, I've got a company, let's say we're three, three or four years old, we've got some revenue coming in, we're looking to bring in some investments. What are some resources that I might want to consider reading before I start marketing my company for equity, you know, raising yeah. equity? Well, I mean, it's been interesting to go from, you know, Wall Street and dealing with more of the institutional public side to being in Silicon Valley now and, and the private side just very different animals in the way we evaluate price risk and and all of those sorts of things. So e even for somebody like myself, who spent a lifetime in capital markets and in finance, it, it still was a very steep learning curve, just kind of, you know, tweaking those antenna ever so slightly so that, you know, so that you do get that gut feel, right? It, it, it just takes time. But I know, you know, Berkeley has a VC program and a number of universities have executive education and there's countless resources out there where you can kind of get up to speed and understand how do term sheets work and liquidation preferences and some of the more esoteric features? What are safe notes? Things of that nature. And, you know, for early stage companies that can get involved with like a Y Combinator or some of these incubators, they help at least walk you through the process. You know, some venture capitalists provide more than capital, right? They provide a certain level of advisory and 
and so forth, whether it's in a formal capacity as a board, you know, on the board of advisors or the board of directors or in an informal capacity because they want to see their investment bear out. So yeah, there's no lack of information, but it all starts with a certain level of enthusiasm and, and interest and something that it may be a bit cliche and may now be a bit of a, an MBA buzzword, but just taking a first principles approach to everything, right? Really understanding it at its core. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why is something the way it is? Because it was designed that way at some point in time because it made a ton of sense. And if you just blindly assume that it's in place, you know, for no other reason than, you know, somebody put their finger in the air, that's probably not the right approach. Take a first principles view of the world. And that relates to how you're financing your business, how you're building your competitive moat, how you're pursuing different customer verticals, all of these sorts of things. You, know, you have to look at it from a first principles perspective and, and just make sure that that you're truly leaving no stone unturned in terms of thinking about all of the different angles. So, you know, if you don't understand something, ask, right? You know how many folks walk into, you know, walk into a new role here in Silicon Valley and, and don't really truly understand how their options work because they're too embarrassed to ask? Yeah, I see it all the time. So just ask, and it's so much better to ask a dumb question in your first six weeks than to wait and ask dumb questions in your sixth month or your sixth year. Just get it out of the way early. Take the Band-Aid off run through dumb questions and become as conversant as possible. And frankly, there's nothing to be embarrassed by. What's embarrassing is if you waited six years to reveal a certain level of ineptitude. No, that's a great point. I know that, you know, a lot of times, and I'm sure it happens to, I mean, everybody, but, you know, our egos get in the way and we don't want to seem like we don't know what we're doing. And so, I mean, and I think a lot of people, especially not just in the corporate world, but even in their personal life, finance is something that, you know, wasn't always like the first thing that they were learned, you know, as, as students. So, you know, it's something that some people, even wealthy people, you'll see them sometimes they have all of this money, but they're just not that great at finance. You, you wonder like, how did you, you know, they're just, they have high incomes or whatever it might be. Right. And that's only going to last for so long unless you become financially literate and you learn how to make your money work, right? Because you've got to put those dollars to work. You can't just let them sit in the savings account because obviously you're losing purchasing power every year if you do that. So as a CFO, what are some of the things that you guys do to determine the level of funds needed to raise? Like, how do you determine like, okay, we know how much we're going to need. Like, how do you come up with the numbers like you're trying to raise? Yeah, I mean, there's a very detailed response to that. And then there's what probably happens more often than not, which is, you know, folks are on sort of a, a one-year funding cycle, right? Generally speaking. Now, it always takes a little bit longer to raise capital. So your, your 12 months turns into really how much capital I need for 15 to 18 months, right? If I want to be on fumes by the end of that period. You know, people generally know what they're looking to spend over the next six to 12 months and less so beyond that, but they kind of know what the, what the long-term vision is. And and those in the C-suite tend to think, you know, think about the world in terms of, you know, where am I 24 to 36 months from now? And so they're often thinking out that far, where do I want to add new talent? Where do I want to make new investments? And these things take time, they're long lead time projects. But as it relates to, to financing the business in the near term, you sort of take a 12 month view of the world and say, how much cash do I have on the balance sheet? What do I need to hit some milestones? And think of Pavlov's dogs, right? You hit the bell, you get the pellet, you hit the bell, you get the pellet. If I can hit some milestones, and create some value, assuming you know markets are relatively flattish, right? Nothing has changed from a macro perspective. I should be able to take those milestones and raise capital on the back of them, right? And people would then invest in me as a management team and as a company to then go out and achieve milestones six, seven, and eight, and so forth, right? And, and the flywheel continues. So 
that's generally sort of the approach that a lot of people look at because it de-risks the longer term investment horizon. Whereas if you were to just give somebody a slug of money for the next four years to go out, they may or may not hit those milestones. And so it's a great way, you know, it's a great system of checks and balances to make sure that the management team is hitting their milestones and recalibrating. And, you know, this is a very dynamic world and, and it's ever changing. So it's not a bad process. There are pitfalls, there are positives and negatives. You know, management time spent raising capital is exorbitant. So, you know, it's, it's probably not the best use of time. But on the other hand, from an investor perspective, you want to make sure that you've got a management team that's out there helping you mark up your book in terms of the valuation of the, of the company and eventually helping you to pursue a liquidity event to allow you to exit your position, right? So that sort of depends on which camp you sit in. That's interesting. Man, what a wealth of knowledge. You really have, you know, obviously seen a lot, done a lot, and you're able to talk to it at great length, which is awesome. How can listeners get in touch? How can they connect with you guys? How can they learn more about FreeWire? What are the social channels that you guys are on? Yeah, sure. By all means, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Michael Beer at Freewire. Or you can email me at mbeer at freewiretech.com. You can also follow us at, at LinkedIn. And yeah, always happy to hear from happy to hear from folks. Awesome. And before we go, audience, I want to remind you guys that to enter to win our weekly giveaway, it's a recycled backpack from Halliburton Labs. It's really awesome. Also, please make sure to rate, review, and connect with any feedback that you have for the show. Michael. It was so great getting to sit down with you, talk with you, and it was great meeting you a couple of weeks back in, in Los Angeles. Obviously, you have a wealth of knowledge. Thank you for sharing all of these little resources that you have and just giving us some insights, what it's like to have to raise money from the company CFO's perspective and, and also from an investor's perspective as well. Definitely appreciate you giving the listeners so much value today. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. All right, man. You guys keep up the fire over there at FreeWire and we'll see you on the high ground. Take care. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.